Welcome to Late Kick is Live. It is Sunday night, June 13th, the year of our Lord, 2021. We are wall to wall. Got the accusation that last show, maybe a little bit too dark, maybe a little bit too negative. And I called BS until I went back and watched it myself. And I said, you know what? You guys, those of you at least who voiced your opinion, may have been right. So no more, at least not tonight. We got a lot of really, really good stuff in the show. Jam-packed as always. College football playoff expansion. Spoke our piece about it the other night. So now what we need to do is for now at least accept what is inevitable and don't have to like it necessarily or maybe you love it. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about winners and losers and I'm going to go maybe a little bit different direction than I think you've heard some folks go at it so far A lot of people have talked about the big conferences. A lot of people have talked about the SEC. A lot of people have talked about the G5. No, we're going to zoom it in a whole lot closer than that tonight. We're going to hit SEC East swing games. We did it for the West, got really good response and feedback on that, so we're going to do it for the East and several more divisions outside the SEC coming up. Texas on fire in such a good way this weekend. They have, and still do as we speak, have a major recruiting weekend unfolding And why are we talking about it? Well, we're talking about it because Texas is a big deal, but also Arch Manning was on campus this weekend. If Texas gets Arch Manning, that's a game changer for the next five years of college football. Could it happen? We will discuss. Also, this time last year, does anyone remember where they were? We were here, Director Colin and I, we were here, but a lot of people were very iffy. A lot of people were wondering, "Uh uh-oh, we got announcements here, we got rumors over here, we're going to have a season Boy, what a favor it does us to be able to look back in hindsight a year later. I am going to end the show a little bit differently tonight than I normally do. I'm going to take probably what will be our most trafficked portion of the show, and I'm going to push it to the end. It's not what they teach you in YouTube school. They teach you to lead with it. Well, no, we're going to put it at the end because we have some more pressing matters to talk about, but suffice it to say... I would stick around to the end of the show tonight. We have some things you and I to discuss. Remember Twitter and remember Instagram, at LateKickJosh. I just wish, wish, wish that you guys were privy to our DMs. You would be shocked at who watches the show. You would be shocked at who listens to the show. And you know what? If you are who I'm talking about or whomst I'm talking about, and, uh, you know, chances are if you are famous, you know, let's just call it that. If you're famous, then you're who I'm talking about. Just go ahead and publicize that you watch. Go ahead and publicize that you listen. Everyone would love to know that you are a part of the Late Kick family here. Let's dive into the show because I, um, I wanted to say that basically to say thank you for giving us the traction to even get in front of people so that they can then consume the content and find out if they like it or not. So thank you so much uh, to you guys who were here long before anyone else was. I want to talk to you tonight to start the show about the playoff, but I don't want to go down any road of whether I like it or whether I approve of the expansion or what I think about the format. If you want to hear that, last couple of shows, that's for you. Now that we know the college football playoff is in all likelihood expanding, and we've got a pretty good gauge on what the format's going to be, I've looked across the college football media landscape, and I have listened to pretty much every take you could imagine on winners and losers. A lot of people have talked about, for example, what would the format look like? Take this 12-team format, apply it, reverse engineer it. What would last year look like? Jesse, I think, has a graphic as to the top 12 teams from last year. What would it have looked like? Would we have had Coastal Carolina or a couple of G5s, Coastal Carolina and Cincinnati in the playoff? That's all well and good. It's my personal opinion that you can't necessarily do that with 100% certainty because as you're looking at the graphic Jesse's showing you right now, how do we know that people still would have voted Coastal Carolina 12 if they knew there was a playoff spot on the line for them. So anyway, 
that's just off in the ether. We don't know. We'll never know one way or the other. But there is one huge winner here. And there's a winner, I think, above and beyond even the SEC. I know a lot of folks look at the SEC and they say they're big winners because you did not put a cap on how many teams can make it from the same conference. And we're all speaking in hypotheticals. I assume this is all going to be passed. And that's all true. But that's not news to me. It's not news that Mike, or not Mike's live, uh, now it's Greg Sankey. It's not news to me that Greg Sankey and the SEC are going to figure out a way to work the system to their advantage. It wouldn't happen if the SEC didn't put its stamp of approval on it, and the SEC is not going to put their stamp of approval on any system that doesn't give them a massive advantage. So yes, as you're looking at all the guidelines that Jesse's showing you there on the screen, yes, this is good for the SEC. Yes, it should be good for the ACC. It should be good for uh, the Big Ten, for example. Yes, it should be. And I know that on top of that, there's been a lot of sentiment out there that I agree with. How could you disagree with anyone saying, this is great for the G5? Yes, it's great for the G5, but you need to understand something. G5, that's like saying car. Well, what kind of car do you drive? What portions of the G5 are we talking about? Because the Mountain West ain't the AAC. And so... This is what I want to do. I want to ask you, or anyone, I'm looking left and right. I'm looking at administrators. I'm looking at conference commissioners. I'm looking at television executives. Do you have any idea what you guys are about to do? Let me put it to you like this. Does anyone know who Mike Oresco is? I would venture to say 60% of our audience, maybe more, does not know who Mike Oresco is. Well, that is the commissioner of the American Athletic Conference. If Mike Oresco and those lobbying on behalf of the AAC, if they are able to pull this format off and push it through, and it looks like they will, it's going to fundamentally change college football to their betterment, to their supreme benefit. I'm going to talk about that in just a second. But this is about to go down, if it happens, as the wildest 180 in the history of college football. For the G5 crowd, think about where they were just a year ago. A year ago, when we didn't know if we were going to have a season or not, do you remember what the talk was? I can tell you in our industry and in the coaching industry and in the football industry, the talk was, if we don't have a season, the big boys will struggle to survive, as is. If we don't have a season, the G5 may go extinct. Vast swaths of what you know as the G5 of college football could be done. They could be out of here. They can't afford to lose a college football season. Well, then we had a season, and all's well that ends well there. Yeah, they got some financial gaps to make up, but they survived. What if you told them then that 10 months later, you're going to have a system on the table just inches away from the goal line that could fundamentally alter the future of the G5 and give them at least one guaranteed spot at every playoff table, if not more in some years? Hats off. I don't have to approve of it, but you got to clap. You got to tip your cap to anyone able to pull that off. And so one year ago, the G5 is looking at possible extinction if we don't have a football season. And now they're looking at being on the verge of fundamentally changing their future. They're guaranteed one spot in this playoff based on this format. They may have more than one spot in a given year. But here's the important part, and here's why the AAC is the massive winner here, above and beyond, relatively speaking, any other conference. You're about to pump massive playoff money into that conference every year, not to mention the increased TV money that they're going to get from new deals that are struck in order to broadcast this thing to begin with. Do you guys have any idea what's about to happen? I'm not just talking to you watching the show. I'm talking to folks in the Pac-12 signing off on this and the Big Ten in portions of the ACC signing off on this. You're about to take a conference 
with programs in Dallas and Houston and New Orleans and Memphis and Cincinnati and Orlando and Tampa and Carolina, and you're about to pump a ton of money into them. Do you know what that's going to do? It's going to allow a conference with programs in very, very much every major portion of the South to finally invest in football to the degree necessary to build the infrastructure to keep premier talent at home. The only talent you've been able to survive and be superior over them because of is now going to have the pipeline shut off to you if you're in the northern portions of the ACC, if you're in portions of the Big Ten and you're not in Columbus, Ohio, if you're out west, if you're in parts of the Big 12. This is going to be horrible for you. That's why I say the huge winner here is the AAC. And if you want to zoom it in to a personal level, think about the seat Gus Malzahn's in right now. Gus Malzahn is the wizard of college football. When you want to put a face on this era, when you're looking back 20 or 30 years from now and you're telling the story, look at Gus Malzahn. All of you laughed. If you're watching on YouTube right now, look at how foolish this looks. Him getting knighted. The, the mascot handing him the ceremonial scepter there. Well, let me tell you what he did. He, being Gus Malzahn, found a way to beat Saban three times while he was at Auburn. He leveraged Auburn up against a wall and got massive money from them guaranteed after the 2017 year. Thus, they had to pay him a huge buyout when they eventually fired him. And then the UCF job opens at the most opportune time imaginable. No one saw it coming. Gus Malzahn lands the best G5 job for my money that there is. And then 15 minutes later, you get word, oh, by the way, not only do you get to live in Orlando and remove yourself and rid yourself from all that pressure in the SEC and still get paid really good money plus your buyout money and be tan year-round and be surrounded by recruits that you don't have Nick Saban breathing down your neck for, not only do you get all that, we're going to change the entire playoff format to where you're going to have a spot in the playoff now. We're going to have 12 spots. you got to win the conference. You're going to be able to get in. Maybe even if you don't win it, you're going to be able to get in. Gus Malzahn is probably the biggest beneficiary of this entire thing. And the conference that he coaches in, that being, of course, the American Athletic Conference, well above and beyond, relatively speaking, any other conference in America, is the huge winner here. They are going to overtake the Pac-12 in time if this goes through. I don't see any way around that. You cannot have that many programs in the middle of big-time recruiting markets in the South finally able to get adequate enough money pumped into their programs and into their conference to invest in football, you're not going to have all that happen and then not keep talent home. You already have seen a sneak peek of what this looks like with Billy Napier at Louisiana. When they went to play Iowa State last year, you watched it and Iowa State as a favorite lost, but it didn't look like an upset. If you didn't know the point spread on the game, you'd think Louisiana was just the superior team. They looked like the better roster. Well, that's because those rosters are a lot more comparable than anyone wants to believe in the Big 12. You got a program up there in Ames, Iowa. You got one down in Louisiana. You want talent from the South. You got to fly 1,500 miles if you're Matt Campbell. You just got to throw a rock out your back window if you're Billy Napier. The only thing that has ever kept those programs from being able to ascend and that conference from being able to ascend to what they call Power 6 level, I just call it flat-out Power 5 level, they may overtake some of these folks in the Power 5, is they haven't had the finances in order. And that is a fancy way to say they ain't had the money. They're about to have the money. Then they're going to have the talent and they're going to have the facilities and they got all that money they need in the future to be what you are now. I don't think anyone has a clue what they're signing off on. I am stunned that you guys are letting Mike Oresco and the G5, for example, pull this off. But I'm kind of sitting over here as a bystander because, I, hey, 
you know, it's easier for me. I'm parked in Nashville. It's a lot easier for me to go cover Memphis than it is Oregon State. So my hat's off to him. If they can pull this off, that's one of the biggest coups or coups in the history of college football. Let us move on because we have a little ways uh, to go before we have to talk about that in finality. But the SEC Eastern Division is very interesting this upcoming year. Georgia's not wearing the crown. Well, at least they weren't at the end of last year. It was Florida. And yet, why do I believe, along with many others, that they really never took the division by the throat? It's such a weird thing. As I've said many times, we were sitting here last year. If I were to tell you Florida's going to beat Georgia this year, Florida's going to have a Heisman finalist this year, Florida's going to win the East this year, you would have thought, my goodness, the SEC East has been turned on its ear. Finally, Florida and Dan Mullen, they've ascended to the top, and it just doesn't feel like that for a number of, number of reasons. But I want to talk about the swing games in the division this year because swing game does not always mean biggest game. Swing game essentially is what we use to get to the end of the year and we look back and we say, circle the game that really determined how the rest of the season turned out. And so let's go down the list here. Start with Georgia. I'm not making it the Clemson game. Why not the Clemson game? Well, because even if they win by 30 or lose by 30 in week one against Clemson, everything they want to accomplish is still on the table. Georgia's got a strong enough schedule that if they win out, they'll be in the playoff. They can win the division. They can win the conference. So I think their biggest circle game is Florida, and it's week nine. The East could be on the line there, but obviously it's a rivalry game, and there's a lot of get back to be had there too. Uh, This was a game where Georgia kind of got embarrassed in a lot of ways last year. This was pre-JT Daniels. JT Daniels has not had a crack at Florida. This was still the hashtag Stetson Bennett era last year. Georgia's going to be a double-digit favorite the rest of the way. After they, I think we're looking, yeah, we're looking at their schedule right now. So they play Florida there. It's the day before Halloween. Well, then you got Missouri and you got Tennessee and you got Charleston Southern. You got Georgia Tech. I don't care if they're on the road or at home. Georgia's a double-digit favorite the rest of the way. So by this time, obviously, we know about both offenses. Georgia, Florida, that is, at least for the Bulldogs, that's their big swing game of the year to me. And you could also call it their biggest game of the year, especially in conference. How about Florida? Because to me, the Georgia game is not Florida's swing game. This is how this game gets played. Florida's got Alabama in week three, but I don't think that's the swing game either. Because again, they could lose to Alabama and still have every one of their goals on the table, but it lets us know where Florida is. If you're a Florida fan, we watch that Alabama game. For better or for worse, we're going to know where we are. And then it's time to go to work. And then we sort of gear up to get into the rest of that conference slate. But they go to LSU in week seven, Florida at LSU. That's the Gators big swing game, because you're going to know after this game what that Florida Georgia game is going to be, at least for Dan Mullen's team. Is it going to be for the East? Because they've already had two losable, very losable games, plus a couple of more by this point. So it could be that Florida is dead even with Georgia. It could be their two games in the standings behind Georgia by this point. Massive revenge angle, though. Florida at LSU, massive revenge angle. I think we all remember what happened, albeit in the fog last year. I think we all remember. And it's the first time we're really going to see Emory Jones and this offense go on the road in a truly elite, top-end, hostile environment. How about the Tennessee Volunteers? It's going to be a pivotal point in the season, the game I selected here. I think it's South Carolina at Tennessee. That game's in week six. It's coming off a back-to-back road stretch, and then Tennessee is going to be an underdog in their next four games. They're going to have to have a couple where they just find a way to win. I know that's so cliche, but they got to do that in games like this. This has been a situation, this has been a matchup where these programs, and this year's going to be no different, are in very similar territory. They both have first-year staffs. Tennessee's got the home field in this. But 
you're either going to have a shot of adrenaline here that you can ride into tougher games, or it's going to be the beginning of a descent, and you're kind of you know resigning yourself to the fact that hey, we're going to have to going to have to focus on early signing date. That's the next really really big circle date here for us because it looks like after this game may be headed off the rails because you got a bunch of tough games even after that one. So the South Carolina game is the circle game for Tennessee. Now as for Kentucky, I picked the game at Mississippi State in Week Nine. Kentucky's offense, there's a lot of overturn there, a lot of intrigue and mystery about Kentucky right now. Well, it will be what it will be by week nine. They're coming off a bye here, but before that bye, Kentucky will have gone through a stretch that includes Florida, LSU, and at Georgia, and that's tough. Uh, They will not be expected to win any of those, although scheduling dynamics favor Kentucky in all of them. I don't know if it favors them to play them all back to back to back, but then they go into a bye. And so then they come out of that bye, they go on the road, and they catch Mississippi State coming off a road game themselves, and this is the kind of reset button that you may need for your season at that point. And if they win, if Kentucky wins, what they have the rest of the way is Tennessee at Vanderbilt, New Mexico State at Louisville. All of those are winnable games, so it could be one of those take your lumps early or in a perfect world just win all your games. But even if they take a couple of lumps, they set themselves up if they win at Mississippi State to really cruise and get some big wins through that back stretch of their schedule, and you never know. I mean, you could be looking at a, a nine-win Kentucky, or you could be looking at a six-win Kentucky. That's going to be the swing game. That's the definition of a swing game. South Carolina, I picked the Kentucky game. Kentucky at South Carolina in week four. This is all about not letting Georgia beat you twice. They got a trip, I think, to Georgia the week before. And they're going to be a heavy, heavy underdog there. And I don't expect them to win that game. But what you can't be doing is having the residue of that game linger against Kentucky. Uh, I think this is going to be a situation, by the way, where Carolina fans, South Carolina fans, I've gotten a lot of feedback on that. So South Carolina fans, I think you guys would be a little uncomfortable if you knew what the point spread would be on this game today. Uh, We would make it internally Kentucky minus 7.5 at Williams-Brice Stadium, no less. And I reached out to an odds maker buddy, and they actually said 8. So they'd have it even fatter than we would. Uh, That shouldn't make you comfortable if you're a South Carolina fan because there's no reason for that to be the case, home or road, to be an eight-point dog against Kentucky. But that's where they are right now. Well, that's why this is a swing game. Win this game. I mean, that's that's the definition of a swing game. They're going to need a couple of gut checks this year. If they're going to hit any kind of reasonable win total, this is going to be one of those gut check games because you don't plan on it happening against the likes of Georgia or Florida. And so you got to get it done here. How about Missouri? This game against Tennessee this year is their swing game for me. It's in week five. This was the most disappointing game Missouri had last year was their game on the road at Tennessee. Uh, It was easily my most disappointing moment for them because um, we were on Missouri in that game last year. Missouri has Kentucky in week two. Then they kind of go off the conference radar, and they don't reemerge until week five when Tennessee comes into town. And it could be part of a 5-1 and or a 6-0 and start. They've got some winnable games. I think they got a game against Boston College in the out-of-conference, but they've got some very workable games early on. There is no game that you're going to pencil in as an automatic loss for them. And so if they win this game, again, could be part of a 5-1, and 6-0 start. And at that point, you start to qualify for early season surprise of the year kind of status. Big swing game here. It's one that I really thought they'd perform better in last year. I didn't think they'd have quarterback figured out until the latter portion of that Tennessee game. Should have it figured out this year. And lastly, Vanderbilt, I just picked Tennessee. It's the last game of the season. It's going to be one where Clark Lee and his staff, excuse me, Barton Simmons and Clark Lee and his staff decide to just toss every grenade they have left in the tank 
And if they win it, that's a Super Bowl win. Even if it's against a beleaguered Tennessee, that would be a Super Bowl win for Vanderbilt. And so as you look up and down the list, Jesse's showing you in totality. We got Georgia, Florida, got Florida at LSU. We got a bunch of big games here. Some of them overlap with these teams' biggest games of the year, but some of them may be a little bit off the radar, thus the title swing game. All right, let's move it on because we've been talking for like a month about how big this month of June is for a lot of programs, and Texas is no different. Remember we warned you about three months ago that we didn't speak the word off-season around here because there wasn't going to be one, but even if you weren't on board with that, you needed to. Especially if you work in this industry, there will be no vacation time. That's what we told you three months ago, and people are finding out about it now. June is no beach season, especially if you're working for maybe, I don't know, Horns 24-7 right now. Those folks, Mike Roach and Nick Harris, if it's possible to work 25-hour days, those guys have been doing it this weekend. It has been a massive recruiting weekend in Austin, Texas. And I tell you this, and I need you to be locked in on it, even if you're not a Texas fan, because this is one of those classic Keystone ripple effect type situations. It's why we choose these kinds of segments to do, even though it focuses on one team, it has to do with every one of you. I go over to Horns 24-7 the other day. And as of a couple hours ago, before I came on air, they had a 34-page deep thread on that message board just about this weekend's official visitors and unofficial visitors. Huge weekend for Texas. So how does this impact an Arizona State fan? How does this impact an Auburn fan? Arch Manning's on campus. That's how it impacts all of you. So Arch Manning is the headliner there. Certainly not the, uh, well, there you see. So Jesse's showing you pictures. It's Arch Manning and a cast of seemingly thousands. It's been a really big weekend, name after name after name. They're going to have another big one next weekend. And so this is not unique to Texas because this is going on at a lot of major programs. But a lot of those other programs don't have a first-year staff in the house. They do at Texas right now. I'm going to tell you one that's, aside from the obvious, really important in just a second. Arch Manning, for the 14 of you who don't know who I'm talking about, yeah, it is him by that last name. He's the number one quarterback in the 2023 recruiting cycle. You saw him in the Texas gear. There were rumors of him at the baseball game. Then those got confirmed. And then there was rumor, Sam Ellinger hanging out with Arch Manning at the baseball game. And as far as I can tell, those got, cons- or got confirmed too. So how big was this weekend? Well, not only was Arch Manning in town, but Arch Manning did something that is a hallmark of many a program that is on the way back up in recruiting. He had pictures of him taken with fans at an airport. That sounds weird, and if you are a European soccer fan, you just happen to be tuned in for whatever reason because you came to the wrong YouTube channel, that makes no sense to you. Let me tell you something. You have got to get big enough talent in town that it is such a huge deal that hasn't been happening in months past that people at the airport, even Austin International Airport, are taken aback by it enough to where they got to be snapping pictures. And that was happening. There was actually a poster on Horns 24-7 that snapped a picture. And that's valuable. I'd I'd save that for an NFT down the road. Because if Arch Manning does commit to Texas, that's worth something. That's worth something. So you can take that advice for free. There is a big question that everyone's going to ask. Can Texas land Arch Manning? Well, the short answer is, yeah, absolutely they can land him. You know how much Texas has going for it? Not the least of which is the brand new head coach in the house that just put on a clinic to end all clinics at the University of Alabama. Well, how did he do that, Josh? Well, he had a cupboard full of talent. 
quarterback and wide receiver. Well, he had the kind of quarterback he's trying to recruit now in Arch Manning. So this is why weeks one and weeks two are going to be so huge for Texas this year. Because Alabama's in it for Arch Manning. There's no guesswork about what Alabama is under Nick Saban. We've long since known they're legitimate. There's no guesswork about Clemson. We've long since known what they are under Dabo Swinney. We don't know what Texas is. And the Manning family does not know what Texas is under Steve Sarkeesian. And this is not a situation, I don't think at least, where you're going to get a guy to buy into pure vision. Vision is great, and I'm told they did as good a job as they possibly could this weekend selling that vision. I think they hit a home run. I think they are squarely in the mix for Arch Manning. But eventually, they're going to have to have something tangible because there's going to be too much tangible result to be seen from Alabama and the likes of Clemson that Texas has got to get it done. they got to show you something in weeks one and two because if you are to come out of summer on this massive recruiting hype wave and then you start to show product on the field earlier than anyone expected, that starts a snowball effect. That's how you really start to take off in recruiting, even in year one under a new staff. And that's how incredible things can happen. If they stumble, that doesn't mean they can't eventually get it on track. But I'm talking about this class and the 2023 class. If you really want to instantly have bang in recruiting, week one against Louisiana, that's going to be a spotlight game for most of the country. And then week two at Arkansas. That's going to be a spotlight game for a lot of the country. They got to get it done there because a lot of guys like Arch Manning, even if they want to go to Texas, even if they're enamored with playing for Steve Sarkeesian, you don't have to show them national championship wins, but you got to show them evidence. You got to show them reason to buy into the vision that you're pitching. It's felt different in Texas this weekend, though. You guys feel it if you're in Austin. I know good and well you do. I've felt it over here in Nashville. I got enough Texas buddies that I talk to that have calibrated my ability to feel out the Texas fan base that when I saw my eye, Josh, light up all weekend, I know this wasn't normal. This has not been normal even for the Tom Herman era. See, a lot of folks will come to you and say, oh, they've always had talent. Not quite like this, they hadn't. And even if they did, they didn't develop it. So you got a new cast in the house and you've got an elite recruiting weekend and you got a staff that runs around talking about being all gas, no brakes. Well, that doesn't mean anything more than wording on the back of a cereal box until they show it to you. And that's what they've been. I don't know if those guys have slept very much recently, but here's how you know Texas recruiting is trending in the right direction. Other fan bases are speaking up and they're saying, oh, really? You're going to win a championship with unofficial visits and official visits? No, they're not. It's true. They didn't land 15 or 20 of these kids this weekend. They didn't land Arch Manning. They got closer to it, certainly, than they were this time last week. How do you think you build elite classes, though? How do you think Ohio State lands kids? you think they just call them up and say, would you like to commit? No, they go through the recruiting hype waves just like Texas is right now. So we've seen some recruiting hype waves flame out. That's true enough. But I've never seen, at least to date, any program build themselves to an elite level without recruiting hype that eventually validates itself in the form of commitments. So Texas is in the process of that, the early stages of that process. But I am over here, at least for the interest of my Texas buddies, I'll wave that burnt orange pom-pom because a good Texas is good for late kick. And I want to wrap up the show. I want to kind of take time to settle myself down because I'm, I'm liable to get worked up talking about this stuff. You have heard me say, about a dozen times over the past, I don't know, month, month and a half, I think a renaissance season is coming for college football. There have been a lot of negatives to focus on lately. Transfer portal, everyone's been out of shape about it. I've been been out of shape with the playoff situation. And some of you guys pointed that out. 
And you said, man, you seem mad the other day. Well, I wasn't mad, but yeah, the show took on a little bit of a negative tone, and I don't like that. You guys were right. So what I wanted to do is end the show tonight as upbeat as I possibly could. And I don't think there's a person that's taking time to watch this show that will dislike what I'm about to say. There are a lot of factors coming together to create a college football season this fall, unlike any that we've ever seen. But to understand what the future holds, I think we got to remember what history included. It's been less than a year. It's been about 10 months ago. I was going back and watching some of our videos today. Do you remember how dark it got there for a little while? I'm, I'm speaking strictly in terms of college football, nothing else. A lot of us had tragedy in our lives outside of football. It's a college football show, so that's all we're talking about here. But about a year ago, next month, it'll be a year next month, that's when we started to hear the drip, drip, drip that became a steady stream of, we may not have a season. You remember the Big Ten famously released their season schedule and then canceled their season six days later. And then there was, what, eight days of silence, Colin? I mean, we did two or three shows where we didn't have so much as a statement from Kevin Warren in the Big Ten. And in their release, when they canceled the season, they told you, I remember the two words as clear as day, it's abundantly clear that we cannot go on, and this is final, this will not be revisited. Then eight days later, because the parents up there wouldn't shut up, and the players wouldn't shut up, and the coaches and some administrators would not shut up, they try and feed you some BS about myocarditis. Basically, they thought you were stupid enough to where they could come to you and present a disease that has been known within the medical community for decades as if it's something that they just discovered within a, a bureaucratic meeting amongst Big Ten officials oh, in the past week. We, hey, look at this word that none of you have probably heard of. Well, doctors had heard of it. And we had two of them reach out to us and say, Hey, you know this myocarditis thing the Big Ten is trying to build its entire argument on? It's crap, at least within the framework of how they're presenting it. It's crap. And so coaches in the Big Ten pushed back, some of them. Players wall-to-wall pushed back. Parents gathered outside the Big Ten league offices. They never accepted it, and they deserve a lot of credit for it. A lot of you didn't accept it. You deserve a lot of credit for it. And even with that barrage of doomsday articles that were parroted essentially from mouthpieces for the Big Ten masquerading as journalists, no one up there accepted it to the point where eventually when the SEC didn't blink and the ACC didn't blink and the Big 12 didn't blink, the Big Ten did blink. Because that's what happens to arguments that don't really have a leg to stand on. When you shine light on it, that's kind of what a cockroach does. It's very brave in the dark. But when you shine light on it, all of a sudden that cockroach responds very, very differently. There was no substance to it. And so then, that's the history. We almost didn't have a season last year, is what I'm trying to tell you. We were that close in portions of this country to not having a season. Never forget, a lot of nameless people, you know the name Kevin Warren, you know a lot of these Big Ten presidents, you don't know the names of the people who were working 15 or 16 hour days in behind the scenes methodology at places like Ohio State or Alabama or, um, or, or UCLA to make sure that we could responsibly have a season. See, those folks are nameless, but there were a lot of people pulling a lot of weight, a lot more so than their paycheck and their contract deemed they needed to, to be able to make sure we could have a season. Don't ever forget those folks, and don't ever forget the folks that stood up, especially in the Big Ten, that stood up and said, no, we're just not accepting it. No, you haven't given us reason enough, so no. That's the history, though. So now we come back to this fall. This fall is going to be incredible. I think we're going to have a renaissance year in college football. There is no form 
of American entertainment that is more suited and better positioned to explode back onto the scene than sports. And I think college football is right at the center of all that. You had 15 months in some portions of the country of isolation. You had an election year. You had a ton of divisiveness. You had COVID to deal with. Some of us lost family members. And you didn't have what's normally there to pull it all together in the fall. When they take the movie theater experience away from you, you just went to Netflix. When they took the stadiums away from you and closed them up and threw away the key, you had no recourse. Where else are you going to go to duplicate the kind of environment that Jesse's showing you right here and right now? But 85 days from now, that is history. And 85 days from now, whether it's Lane Stadium in Blacksburg on a Friday night against North Carolina, whether it's Charlotte, where it's Clemson and Georgia, whether it's down in the swamp in week three when Alabama comes in there, whether it's week two, Oregon at Ohio State in front of 100,000 people. Look at the Women's College World Series. Look at what the environments have been like for these college baseball regionals. Talk to people on the ground. It's above and beyond anything they've ever seen. People are so thirsty to get back to sports. People want to come together. Despite what you may see on platforms and what you may hear some people tell you on cable news, people long for it. They long to be able to meet around a campfire. Campfire, in our case, is college football. It's this fall. you got new quarterbacks at major programs that could up in the apple cart that you've been used to for a few years. you got several programs on the cusp of breaking into elite status. you got coaches under pressure. you got other coaching staffs ready to break through. you got millions of people coast to coast that are ready to unify around something that used to be there and then it was taken away from us for a year and now we're about to get it back. College football in 2021 will be a renaissance season and college football in 2021 will be unlike anything you've ever seen. You won't have to wait long. You'll see it right there in week one. So that's how I'm going to leave the show tonight a little bit different than we did the other night. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for watching the videos. Even during the offseason, we have not seen the dip in traffic that you would expect us to see because we don't really do the offseason, and you guys don't either. Thank you so much for that. Like the videos if you're on YouTube. Five-star reviews for the podcast if you're listening there. For Director Emeritus Colin, Jesse and crew done a phenomenal job in Connecticut. I'm Josh Pate. Have yourselves a great start to the week, and God bless.